Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number six. We're here with Scott Moulton, hard drive expert, wizard, guru, any word that you can think of, which means an absolute master of something. I think Scott is that of hard drives. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very good. And uh, today we're going to talk about um, data recovery diagnostics, knowing where to start and stop. Scott basically, uh, or Scott recently gave a speech at Freaknik and... Scott, why don't you tell us what Freaknik is and uh, and what the speech was about, basically? Okay, uh, Freaknik is a is a small con that's done in Nashville, and uh, it is I think it's like the second longest running computer con that's in existence or something. This is its thirteenth year. Um, it's a uh, it's usually two hundred fifty three hundred people, and it's uh, done at a Days in there. It's kind of a rundown Days in, so we take over the whole whole hotel, and uh, this is my second or third year there, uh, and it kind of has like a little sister con that kind of goes on uh, six months later in March, there'll be one called Outer Zone. And so Outer Zone will be in Atlanta, uh, my hometown. So uh, so I'll give a, a talk there as well. But they kind of go together. But it's a, it's a small con, and uh, I did a talk on uh, data recovery diagnostics. And it's like most other cons where most of the topics, technical topics, will be going on. But there will also be some, some other things, like uh, somebody gave a, a talk on how to hack uh, coffee. And uh, there's a guy who does... Uh, 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 all kinds of music and stuff as well. So there'll be two or three musicians there doing a talk on music or actually physically doing a, a little concert inside the place. Really? What do you mean coffee? Uh, basically how you can go through the process of uh, baking, uh, you know, roasting your own coffee and then trying to actually do it from a green bean so that you can get a better flavor out of your coffee as opposed to actually going to a Starbucks or something. Uh, one of the th- one of the points they made was is that Starbucks used to do, uh, you know, like tap and press. They used to actually uh, grind your coffee there and then they'll press it and tap it. And it made for a really fresh cup of coffee. But I guess because of economic times and the amount of time it takes to actually do that, they've stopped doing it. And so apparently a lot of the, the, the Starbuckses aren't doing that now. So you're not getting that fresh brew. You're getting, you know, just the same thing you would if you ground your own. I wonder if people realize that. I bet you they didn't lose any business from that. No, nah, I bet not. Nah. I bet there's a lot of people who just don't even know the difference. Uh, you know, they're just going for whatever. But when you actually have a really fresh, I mean, like, because basically what ends up happening is you do your coffee, you roast your own coffee. It takes about 12 minutes to roast it from a green bean. And then uh, you basically let your coffee bean sit like six to eight hours. And uh, so the next day, basically, they're going to be right. It's kind of kind of like letting wine breathe or something. So, <laughs> uh, so the next morning, your coffee, as soon as you grind it, it will be one of the best flavors that you've ever had. I mean, it's kind of like you know, if you went to an island and had a fresh banana, it's going to be different than the banana that you're going to get at the grocery right, store. Right, right. It's the same kind of idea. That's you know what when you said hacking coffee, I'm like I felt like an idiot. I'm like. Oh, great. Coffee is this language of programming language or something that I have no idea about. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because there is something called coffee, Microsoft Coffee, which is uh, Microsoft makes a tool for forensics that's called coffee. And it's a conglomeration of all these scripts and things that run together. And, <laughs> really? Uh, and it's typically only given out to law enforcement. So huh. so there so there is something that's called that. Okay, but it's good. just kind of funny. But yeah, no, we really meant like... Real coffee, not like uh, like a computer thing, right? <laughs> you know what else I wanted to ask you? Freak Nick, like a, a, a con like that. Are, are the small ones like that, like, you know, you're doing a rundown days in or whatever, are, are they more fun than doing the big ones? Or it, how does it compare to doing like a big con? 
Well, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's really fun because one of the things is is that you're not really stressed out. You're not really like when you're doing a big con, or I, you know, I go to do even something like uh, even something that's kind of still little on the low rent side, but thousands of people, like uh, um, DefCon or something like that. Yeah, there's still three thousand people in the room, and there's still a lot that you know it's kind of expected for you to put on this show. And uh, not that I put on a different show because I'm doing it at Freaknik, but I can be a little freer with what I say right. and uh, and be a little more spontaneous with, um, you know, I don't know, ripping up on some people or something, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so it's a lot more fun. Plus, it's a, it's a smaller environment, so you pretty much get to know everybody. And so that really makes a difference, too, that you can actually talk to your audience and you can be a part of the audience or know somebody in the audience and, yeah. and make a comment with regards to what they do for a living. So... Uh, cool. So that does make it a little bit different, and and you know that's the other big thing is that when there's three thousand people, you can't shake everybody's hand. But right. when there's two hundred people, the ones that are interested in coming to talk to you, yeah. you can actually have a conversation with without without having to uh, you know cover the whole the whole arena. Right. Oh, neat. Neat. I gotta watch. I gotta go see one of your talks one of these days when you're uh, in my area. In the outer zone that'll be here in Atlanta, it's going to be usually it happens the first weekend of March. So it'll be here in Atlanta, and it'll be a small kind of low-rent hotel again. It'll be, you know, $69 a night thing. But uh, it's only going to be about 75 or 100 people. So huh. so that's a perfect environment for people to come and meet and talk about things and actually, you know, even sometimes get into the details, like showing you how something works right. or taking it apart on site. Wow. Neat. All right. If anybody's interested and they're in the area, check Scott out there. And um, as far as your speech here, um, this is great. I, you know, I didn't listen to the, the actual – File the uh, what do you have it as an MP3 file or you just have the slides well, here? Um, no, it's actually a video. The video is actually online. It hasn't made it to YouTube yet, but it's made it um over to Blip TV. Okay. So uh, if anybody wants to, the link right now is posted on my Twitter account or on um uh it's also on my Facebook account. But if anybody wants to look at those, they'll have the link. That's where I post it first, and then in a couple of days, it'll actually make it to YouTube and to my website. Cool. And then the best way, if you want to follow along with this podcast now, we're going to roughly follow his uh, his speech and the slides that went along with it. And can you give the URL, Scott, for the where to get yeah. the slides? Yeah. Uh, basically, you go to myharddrivedive.com, and the easiest way to find the page is if you go to the presentation page, I list my current speeches that I'm giving, and at the top, you'll see Freaknik. And if you click on Freaknik, it'll take you to the page about the speech, and then at the top, there'll actually be a link for the slide, so it'll actually say, you know, download the large presentation slides here yeah it's it says pdf big 39 meg so it might take a minute or two but um i was looking through the slides really neat and uh it, the title of this the speech according to slides is do it yourself data recovery diagnostics knowing where to start and stop and let me see if i could pull down oh yeah here's the theme the theme that you started out with when you're doing this talk is things that suck which i think is i think i'm going to title the name of this podcast this week things that suck, <laughs> things that suck. <laughs> yeah yep. so um why don't you start going through, um, you know, basically uh, the, the slides in your speech, and um, you know, I'll chime in and and, and follow along with you, and we'll okay, go along with this. Well, one of my big goals for this uh, talk, because uh, basically all the other speeches that I gave everywhere that you know, there's 50 or 60 hours of YouTube videos out there, have all been after the diagnostics phase. There, they've always been. Oh, look, now I've got a broken hard drive. Here's how you fix it. And I started out with, well, you know, if you knew what was wrong with it. So if you knew you had a bad head, this is what you do to repair it. So, right. uh, so I never really took that step back and I actually said, okay, well, look, you know, I get these emails all the time that actually say, oh, I think I need to replace a head. But 
there's a lot of things that people aren't taking into consideration before they do that. They just jump right in feet first and they start replacing heads. And so I wanted to try to get that information out there to tell them, you know, slow down and stop for a second and think through this process a little bit. And so I kind of outlined some some content with regards to how to know what was wrong with the drive before you start doing it and certain things that are exceptions because if somebody tells me, I think my hard drive is dead and I need to have this head replaced, then my first question out of them is going to be, well, what model drive is it? Because I need to know if it's a Seagate or a Western Digital because they have exceptions for those two things that could be a problem. And it might not be a head that's actually a problem. It could be firmware that exhibits a problem that's similar to a head problem. Huh. So I need to try to you know whittle those down a little bit so people know, hey, this is where I need to stop. And uh, if, it, if it turned out, okay, it's a Seagate, and it has this uh, – there's a particular set of model numbers and stuff that have a particular firmware problem. And so we call them the F3 series. But all the ones that say 7211 and 7212 will typically be different than the other Seagate hard drives that are out there. And they have a known firmware problem. And you need to know what the feedback from the drive is before you go ripping the heads off and replacing them because you're not going to accomplish anything. You're still going to have the problem when you're done. Okay. So, uh, so try not to make it worse was kind of the whole point. And then, uh, and then the theme about things that suck was, well, there are a lot of things that just don't give you proper information that people have been giving you a lot of feedback about uh, imaging and USB and you know how things work. And I just wanted to get those things out of the way. So I've been following this whole idea. You know, what if I had a firmware problem or a head problem or a board problem, and I've got to I've got to figure out what's wrong with it. Let's get the crap out of the way so that we can at least do the the real work as opposed to the fluff that people are putting out there on the on the internet that basically says this does diagnostics. Gotcha. Uh, so this is like the first step to do if your hard drive is flaking out. Um, this you're going to go over basically the first thing you do before you just assume that it's something else. Yeah, uh, as much as I can. I, right. I mean, you know, the hard part for this is that you know typically I'm doing talks that are you know 50 minutes or so. Right. So I've got to whittle it down. I start with you know 200 slides and 200 pieces of information, <laughs> and and I've got to whittle it down to what I you know what I can say and right. what is important that right. I can get across. But there's always this pile of stuff that's outside of what I can just cover in any particular talk that I do. Right. Even even in the classes, you know, I got five days I can talk on a class and teach you what's going on. And that gives a lot more breadth of information than what you're going to get in a talk, but there's still more. It, n- it never ends. There's always something that can happen or an exception can occur. Right. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> All right. So whittled, whittled down, right? You, we're going to try to find out if it's a firmware problem, head problem, board problem, motor problem, platter problem. And uh, so what do we do? Well, the, the very first thing that I want to tell people is I want them to stop and not just start thinking about opening the lid and looking at something, uh, mainly because, like like I had described, I think, on one of our previous podcasts that Western Digital drives have a problem if you take off the lid, right. that you're actually going to cause an alignment problem on the platters themselves. So so the first thing that I've been wanting to say is just basically, you know, stop, let's let's think about it, let's listen to the sounds, let's let's take every piece that we can and diagnose it first before you disassemble this drive. Gotcha. So so that was my first thing, because otherwise you're going to cause more problems, and that's going to suck. Right, okay. So, okay. so, uh, so basically when I'm teaching classes and I'm doing a, a lot of recovery functions, I've come up with this process, which I call the five phases of recovery. Okay. And so, so basically it's just basically a schematic for how you can kind of walk through some things. And so you start out with your diagnostics phase, but the diagnostics phase 
itself isn't just let's know what's wrong with the drive. It's actually a process that includes copying or imaging this hard drive. Gotcha. And so when I say imaging the hard drive, some people kind of don't really get what I mean because, uh, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, imaging software, well, that's Ghost or that's, you know, uh, um, I mean, there's there's dozens and dozens of packages out there that actually cover that, whether right. or not it be, you know, Acronis a has True Image and there's a Drive Cloner and half a dozen others. But the real problem is, is that none of those tools deal with any kind of problem. They don't know what to do if there's a failure. They image a drive, but they only image working drives. They're meant for backups. They're meant for, for cloning a working drive. And so regardless of how much you pay or look at those things, they're not going to help you when you're dealing with a damaged hard drive. Right. So, <clears throat> so my goal here is basically to say, well, look, these tools all suck. All of those that you're basically going to, you know, maybe some of the ones that are just, you know, high end that you're going to pay for. Uh, they're not going to do anything with a damaged drive. And that includes other tools too, like uh, um, Microscope. Like they have a tool that's called Microscope that's, uh, you know, for system diagnostics. And there's a couple others like, you know, QT Pro and things that are computer diagnostics tools. And they say they diagnose your hard drive. But they don't know how to deal with a damaged hard drive that doesn't show up in the BIOS or that it can't. In other words, it's already got to be a working drive, right. but maybe only a couple of bad sectors. Right. And it'll test, test the drive to tell you, oh, yeah, you got some bad sectors. Gotcha. Let me just stop you for one sec, Scott. If anybody <clears throat> is following along with the slides, check out slide number seven. That's where he goes over to five phases of data recovery. Just uh, Go ahead, Scott. I just wanted to let people know if they were following along. Yeah, okay. That's not a problem. Uh, uh you know, from the diagnostics phase, uh, you'll actually see how I actually tied the two together. The, the diagnostics and the imaging go together, and there are some processes where the two of those will give you your feedback. And then in the middle, you'll actually see the repair process for the drive gotcha. itself. Gotcha. Um, and so it kind of is this loop that goes around these three items. So it starts with diagnostics, repair the drive if it's broken, image and copy. And all of it is the goal to get to that imaging phase. Gotcha. And then after you're actually done imaging a drive, after you're, and I'll explain a little bit more about imaging a drive in a second, but okay. uh, um, the, after you're done with those three phases, that's when your logical recovery starts, which is basically now I've got a drive and I've got some corruption or I've got some data on here and I need to get it off. That is where almost every one of the software tools actually starts. I see. They, they start when you go when you go to a website and you download, you know, Pandora Recovery or something like that uh, or whatever it is. Any software that's basically scanning your drive for recovery, those are typically logical recovery packages. They're not doing anything to the physical side. So they're not covering – some of them may image – a drive, but again, they don't deal with a real damaged drive. They're right. not dealing with the physical image. They're dealing with the logical image. Gotcha. And so, uh, so you're not going to get anywhere with those. And that's where most people think they're starting. They're, you know, they're going and downloading. Uh, I mean, even OnTrack, the one of the leaders in data recovery, sells this package that they call, you know, OnTrack's Data Recovery Pro or whatever, Easy Recovery Pro. And that's where it starts too. It starts with the logical recovery phase. It doesn't really know anything about the lower end stuff and, and what's happening. They want you to send your drive in for those physical repairs. Gotcha. So the trick is imaging it then, because I see what you wrote here and it's a little scary. You're like, absolutely do not ever run any utilities on the original until you imaged it. And then you go through like check disc and fix MBR, fix boot, say no to spin, right? They all suck on damaged drives. You can run them on an imaged or cloned drive. So I guess it's the, the trick of how to image it. And so how do we do yeah, it? It's a, uh, it's, you know, it's because you don't, 
when you're imaging something, the whole point is is that when I'm talking to the drive, I don't care about files. I don't want to know about files. I want to know about sectors. Okay. Sectors are what matters, and that's where the real data is, and that's where you can kind of drill down to, I've got a couple of bytes that are bad here, and I'm dealing with these bytes. And if you can get all of those things taken care of, then the logical side will take care of itself. Even if there is corruption or something, it'll give you your best possible chance. So I'm not starting with those other tools you know, that end up being things like uh, you know, OnTrack Easy Recovery Pro or something. Right. And, the, and one of the things with SpinWrite, um, one of the, the only real main thing, I mean, SpinWrite could possibly someday be a great tool. The problem with SpinWrite is it writes its data back to the same drive. Right. So you've got a damaged drive that you know isn't working right, and there might be some corruption or something else might be there. And it might be the last time that you ever see that data is, you know, while SpinWrite's reading it and trying to move stuff around. And, you know, I hear all the reports of all the people who say, oh, yeah, SpinWrite fixed my problem and, and did whatever. But it's still a major problem that it doesn't have an option for a destination. You can't call it data recovery if it does not go to a different drive. <laughs> do, you, do you know if Steve Gibson is aware of this, or have you, have you talked to him oh, about it? Oh, I have sent him emails. I have been on radio shows trying to get him on. I've, I have done a dozen different things to try to get his attention. So Because, I mean, in my opinion, some of the things that he does in the software is pretty awesome, except for the fact that it doesn't ever go to a destination drive. Right. And so I really can't test it and compare it in, res, in regards to what, the other equipment out there does because one of the things that happens right now is that most of the data recovery, the real good stuff is all hardware. It's all physical equipment that can do things like control power and control, you know, bad things that are happening to the drive. And I'd like to have a software solution that's similar and his software is the most similar to the hardware tools that I've seen uh, in the feedback and the things that it's giving me. I haven't found another tool that's comparative to the hardware in the software world, but I think if his actually went to a destination drive, there might be a chance for that. But I, hmm. I just cannot accept it writing its data back to the original drive. Right. I have seen too many drives. I've had them in for recovery that have been damaged, and most of the time what ends up happening is, yeah, it might have only had a couple of bad spots on it, but because it kept grinding on that spot trying to read that, it eventually caused you know physical damage to the drive to the point that I can't read anything anymore. Oh, man, that sucks. Yeah, so it's, you you just can't call something data recovery if it doesn't write to a destination disk. There's no real data recovery. There are, are other tools like his that do this. Like there are, uh, there's like a, one called like HD Restorer, and there's another one that's called like Rejuvenator or something. Right. And they're very similar. They go over the same space on the same drive and put it on the same you know device, but they don't write to a secondary either. So I wonder why none of these programs do that. Well, I know I know what their purpose was for, and it's you know it's it, it's great from a diagnostics perspective, from a standpoint of hey, do I have a bad sector, and maybe repair a bad sector. But there's always potential for doing more damage. And if you spent you know three five you know five days on a drive that's damaged while it's rewriting the drive, and you know there was only a little bit of damage left, and then that was the end of the drive, and it died in that process and you can't get anything back, you know, what if it had been writing to another drive? If it had been writing to a secondary, we could at least read that. We could at least have what we already wrote. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. So that is that. So how do we image a drive? Okay, so, uh, so typically when I'm looking at a drive, I'm looking at content physically coming from each sector. Now, I'm, I use a piece of hardware. It's called a DeepSpar Disk Imager as my most common tool, uh, mainly because... 
power is one of the tricks that I'm trying to control. Okay. There are tools that will read sector by sector and deal with it that are just software that are fairly close to some of the function, but they can't control timing and they can't control power. So that's the real difference between hardware and software is being able to control that timing and the power. Uh, software can do it, but it might take a lot longer for it to do it. Uh, so there are tools like Media Tools Pro, which can read sector by sector, doing ATA commands, doing requests, and then trying to uh, copy each sector one at a time, regardless of the files. It doesn't know anything about the file system at all. Your drive doesn't know anything about your file system. All okay. it knows is that you have sectors, and this is where the data is coming from. Everything that's translated for files is all done by the operating system. It's not done by the drive. Okay. So, so that's the big thing is when we're focusing on doing some imaging, we need to have a tool like MediaTools Pro or something that can actually talk directly to an individual sector and read those sectors. And the DeepStar Disk Imager can do it, and it has some really cool functions like running in reverse, which is an, an awesome way to copy a drive that might have damage that can't be read going forward. There are instances where you will have like problems with UDMA transfers, uh, transfers through memory and across the bus, and the drive can't actually transfer data when it's requested in advance. But you can uh, get that data in some cases if you're reading backwards. Huh. If, you're, if you're telling the drive, instead of going from the beginning of the disk to the end of the disk, go from the end of the disk to the beginning of the disk, it will come at the data from a different direction, and the way it transfers it into memory is different. Uh, the cache that's on a hard drive, so if you have a drive that has two megs of cache, it's reading in advance. But if you're going backwards, you basically aren't using the cache at all from that hmm. standpoint. It's, it will try to cache individual sectors as it's reading it, but it can't pre-cache the content. Huh. So that's why tools like uh, Media Tools Pro can actually do the job that will actually work uh, as it's reading Reading in reverse, it'll actually still transfer that content. Even if there's a, a damage in certain locations, it might actually be able to skip it or get past that location. Okay, Media Tools Pro is that is that that's run on just a regular operating system. You know, it's not a piece of hardware. You don't have to have the deep spar disk imager or anything like that, right? Right. It's a it's a it's a four pay tool that you can buy. Um, if you do a search for Media Tools Pro, it'll be fairly easy to find. Uh, it's like by ProSoft Engineering, uh, and it will allow you to uh, make an image, and there's a selection for making a clone of a drive in reverse. Um, so it's it doesn't help a whole lot necessarily on diagnostics, but the issue becomes if you can read sectors from the drive and you're in the process of imaging it, then you know that you've probably made it through a lot of the other problems that we're talking about, right. firmware and board problems and things. So right away, you'll actually know what the status of the drive is because if you're able to copy even a single sector off that drive, yeah. then you probably do not want to exchange parts right. in, until you know that you have exhausted all possible potential that you have for copying data with those parts you have. Okay, I got it. Now, before we go on, why don't we just say that you can't do this with a USB drive, right? Right. Uh, USB is a big problem because, you know, one of the, the big conflicts that actually happens, people have gotten so used to just using USB for everything. Oh, I've got a computer and I don't want to open my case and here I can plug it in through USB and I can do a data recovery. USB is really dumb. It really does not have any real interface or any easy way to communicate with a drive or do error correction or any kind of damage control. Uh, when you plug in a USB drive into your computer, 
this, it actually starts up a driver called a mass storage server driver, basically for your machine. It's started, starting up this mass storage driver, and it's just using generic calls to talk to the drive. And in most cases, you can't pass uh, any real ATA commands or do any additional work directly on the drive. It's just going to go through the operating system and use the API to do the commands, and that's all you're going to get. Okay. And so it doesn't deal with errors very well at all. So really, if you want to really look at a damaged drive and you want to do the best job you can at, at trying to do a recovery, don't use USB. What you need to do is just either, and it doesn't even matter if it's an old computer. You can have an old computer in the corner and you just want to make like a little lab bench out of it or something. You just rip off the case and throw the motherboard on the counter. And even if it's, you know, even if it doesn't have SATA or it only has, you know, a PETA controller or something instead of of what you need. You can use these interface, these these bridge boards to connect any kind of drive to any kind of motherboard that you want, even the, the, regardless of what the controller is. Um, you mean there's like you, a, a board that has like SATA ports on it or something like that? Yeah, there is a, if you have say an IDE hard drive and you need to plug it into SATA, there actually is a converter for that. And there is also the other way around so that if you don't have a a motherboard that has SATA on it, instead of actually putting in a card that has SATA or something, yeah. you can actually still connect the SATA connector directly to, there's a little bridge board that you would plug into the SATA drive, and it comes back out as a PETA, like a standard right. parallel. I, I, I have used them. There's like, it's like a little box, like a little, sure. um, looks like the size of, a, the one I've used looks like the size of like a SD card reader or something, and it plugs right well, into are, the drive. There are some, but there's actually bridge boards that is just a board that just connects and has the converter on it. I got you. So you can just go straight out. Those are better than using the ones, because the ones you're talking about are typically powered separately. And uh, the, the ones I'm talking about, the bridge boards are actually usually powered by the same, same uh, channel, okay. the same device. Makes sense. So, so that makes a big difference. But if you're able to get that drive plugged in directly on the motherboard instead of through USB, then you can use some real di- diagnostics tools like gotcha. MHDD. Gotcha. So uh, MHDD that we've talked about before, um, the easiest way to deal with it would you know, either be go make a floppy disk, but if you don't have a floppy controller, you can use a, a boot CD. Um, and the ultimate boot CD, um, there's actually a, a, a disk. It's called the ultimate boot CD, which is a free downloadable burn this disk, and then you throw it in your machine, and it has all these data recovery and diagnostics tools on this, the free ones now, are on this, now, the CD. There's the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows and there's the Ultimate Boot CD. Which one are you talking about? Well, you only the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows is still under development, I believe. Okay. It's still actually coming around, but, uh, but that's just so that you know in Windows you'll actually have some tools to use, but that's not going to be helpful for you uh, in the data recovery arena from that standpoint. You, you need to be talking directly through a DOS platform or something. Gotcha. You're getting around uh, some of the Windows problems and the API getting in the way. Gotcha. So MHDD, it's on the Ultimate Boot CD. And by the way, Scott, like after you mentioned that, a lot of my listeners have been emailing me and calling in saying that they've used that and they love it. Yeah, it is a it is an absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best of the programs that I know of from a standpoint of giving you diagnostic feedback. And the other thing is too is even people who who you know once you see it, it'll start making a little bit more sense if you know what the flags mean. When the drive has an error, it'll send back a a response. And MHDD is one of the only free tools that will actually read those responses and then give you an error flag in a status display to tell you what those things are. Hmm. Um, the hard part is most people don't understand what they are. What the you know so if you say you know if you see an error and it says AMNF or something like that, what kind of error is that? 
And so there, there is a list of those, and there is a way to actually go about that. But it's more than I can discuss in this show. But right. you know, if people want to email me or something like that, or I'll post uh, what the errors mean and, and when you when you have to pay attention to those things. But it's one of the only free tools that will actually give you feedback. And we're going to pay attention to some of those flags doing doing data recovery. The main one, like for instance, on the Seagate drives that I mentioned earlier, the F3 series, when they have a firmware problem there's a busy light and the busy light will just stay on and it will never return what's called drive ready and drive seat complete. Hmm. So there's two other lights that won't come on, but one light will stay on. And so you need to know that. And there's a way that you can actually hook up a drive and find out whether or not you've got this particular problem and possibly even fix it. On a Seagate, you said? Yes, on a Seagate gotcha. drive. Gotcha. There are other situations that happen with other drives, but obviously that's the point is that we need something that gives us back these status flags. Most of the other pieces of software that you're used to using, you know, they just have like a button, you click it, and you get either a little thermometer that goes across the screen or you'll get, you know, I'm busy as it's copying or doing whatever it's doing, scanning the drive, but you never get feedback. You don't. You, I don't know of any other software out there uh, that g- actually gives you that kind of feedback that shows hmm. you what's going on on the commands and the requests and the diagnostics going on the drive. Right. Huh. It's free. Good tool. Free tool. Yeah, it's a free tool. It's awesome. And uh, there's it's kind of like a sister program that goes with that. That's uh, called Victoria. Okay. And Victoria has two versions. It has a DOS version that's very similar to MHDD, and it has a Windows version. And there is one advantage to using the Windows version. Uh, over just trying to do diagnostics on on a on a regular drive or whatever. I mean, besides the fact that you have you know if you have to be in Windows and you don't have any other option that you've got to try to do some diagnostics, you can use Victoria to do that. But the secondary thing is um, eSATA. If you have eSATA and mm-hmm. let's say you're on a laptop or something and you have no way to communicate with an external hard drive through the motherboard, right? eSATA is the only answer you have. Hmm. And so you can put in an eSATA card into your laptop. And then that actually becomes your ATA controller, and you can talk to that just like you do a regular motherboard uh, ATA controller and make requests and do things to it. How would you do that uh, on a laptop with like an express well, card or PCMCIA slot? Or? Yeah, exactly. You'd have to use an express card or, or PC. So you have to install a card that right. will do this the, to, to talk eSATA to a device. Right. The issue is, is that none of those cards that I know of actually work in DOS. So they only work in Windows because you've got to have a driver to right. control the 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 card itself. Gotcha. So there is a version of Victoria that's for Windows that could talk to the drive through the eSATA controller, so that you actually have the ability to examine a drive, say on the road or on a laptop right. or something, uh, without having to have an actual motherboard. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. All right. I'm moving on on your slides. Then uh, okay. So say we run these programs, we determine that we have a damaged drive. Mm-hmm. Should we take it from there? Well, okay. So one of the big things is, is you know, in the s- stepping through the process and trying to figure out whether you have a damaged drive or how damaged it is, one of the things is you need to know where it is in the process. So, for instance, when you when you power on a drive, yeah, it's there's kind of a post process that the drive goes through that's very similar to what your motherboard goes through in its diagnostics process to say, oh, do I have RAM? Is it working? And so on and so on. So a drive has a number of steps that it goes through in this power on routine, um, and so it'll go through the self check, and then it'll it'll go through the process of spinning up the platters themselves. Then it will try to unmount the heads. 
And so there's a lot that actually happens in between there. So for instance, if your motor doesn't spin up, we have a process for how we actually test, find out whether or not it's going to be a board problem or a motor problem. But it's really important to know that let's say it does spin up and that the head does move and it does go out over the platter. You know, do we have a firmware problem? Do we know if the board itself is damaged? So in the process of the drive spinning up and reading content from the platters, it will have an area on the drive that we've talked about before that's called the system area. Okay. And the system area has a lot of content in it that it reads. If the drive's head is able to read the content, you'll get certain things that you won't get otherwise. So what you're trying to pay attention to is whether or not you have a serial number. In most current hard drives, in most hard drives that have been made since, say, 2002, there may be a few exceptions, but since 2002, if you, if you see a serial number, and let's say we started up MHDD and we started to try to run a, a, an analysis on the drive, right. and we see a serial number and a model number, those two things typically are coming from the platters. They're read from the platters from the system area. And... The same is true of, of other things like the geometry of the disk. So, for instance, um, anything that says how big my disk is and uh, HPAs, things that are host-protected areas that we've, we've talked about those before too, I believe. Uh, so those two things basically are read from the system area of the drive. So if you're able to see how big your drive is, and it's not fake, like it doesn't show up at like two terabytes or something like right, that. Right, right for an 80 gig hard drive right. then you know because obviously something's wrong with the firmware at that point or you've got some problem reading data from the drive but that's ultimately what you're looking for is do I do I get a serial number a model number and am I am I actually able to see the geometry am I able to see how big the hard drive is if those things have happened then you can have a pretty good assumption that hey the basics have worked here that my heads my heads are working the at least the SA area's head the head that's necessary to read from that platter is working um, there may be other heads that are bad, but they're not going to affect the ability for you to read the serial number or something at that point in time. Right. right. Um, and so as you're stepping through that, you already know, look, I've got a pretty good chance my board's okay now and that my heads are probably okay and that the platter and the motors are spinning up. So now I'll probably be dealing with issues that are going to be related to the user's data itself. Like I probably got bad sectors or I've got something else that's causing me another problem on the disk. So now it's all about imaging. So once you determine those things and you get the serial number and, and the other stuff from the system area, does that mean now you can use a program that does imaging like, um, you know, a Cronus or something like that? Or Well, I probably would not use those just because there's a high likelihood that there's going to be some damage to sectors <coughs> or something else on the drive. And they're mm -hmm. going to fail right after they start. They'll start to read data, and then as soon as they've hit a bad sector, they'll die. And you'll end up with something that you still can't read or do. But you can use – I mean, there are ways – even MHDD will actually copy out the sectors of your drive into a file. Hmm. So you can actually use MHDD to do – you know, to cut, to copy data from the drive. Gotcha. Um, it's, it's probably not the most efficient, but there are several, like, um, for one, for one would be DD Rescue. So DD Rescue is a Linux application, uh, so you could boot on a boot CD that's a Linux boot CD and use uh, DD Rescue and be more successful than you are by using a Cronus or something else on a damaged hard drive. I see. So, okay. so there's at least free ways to do that. Um, one of the other things is, too, is that, by reading in reverse, if you're able to actually flip the switch for it to read in reverse, you have a better chance of actually copying data because obviously you had a problem with the drive in the first place. So now you might have a better chance if you're reading in reverse. 
you could just use, there are some Linux tools that have already kind of like streamlined this process. And there's one called MyRescue. And MyRescue just basically is, you know, MyRescue-R. And then it reads in reverse. And so you can read a drive to a drive or a drive to a file. Huh. Okay. So, and then there was that program you talked about earlier. What was it called? My, or starts with, let me see. Oh, uh, Media Tools Pro. Yeah, Media Tools Pro. Is that Media some- Tools Pro, yes, also would be great at okay. this point to actually okay. use during that process. Gotcha. Uh, so, but you know, that was one of the things that I was trying to make sure that people understood was that you know, as the drive is able to read this content from the SA area, from the system area, that that tells you a lot right away because you know that there's always a question, you know, do I have a firmware problem? I see. And at that point in time, you probably don't. Huh. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know every everything's not you know there, there's not an exception somewhere, but there's a good chance that if you're able to read that system area. Now, there's one other way that you can actually tell. Um, whether or not it's a firmware problem. Let's say that the SA area wasn't able to be read right. and or you weren't able to get that serial number in, and the geometry back. Right. Um, you know, the question still would be, well, does is the board working correctly or do I have damage to the drive or is there some damage to the system area? Um, unfortunately, this other method that I'm going to talk about, you actually would have to open the platter. You'd have to open up the lid to see the platters to see what's going on because what's going to happen is the head of the drive when it tries to read the system area Mm -hmm. right after the drive is initialized the head will move to a very intentional location so you'll actually see the head go to a location and it will almost kind of like jiggle back and forth for a second and then return back to another location and so what you're looking for is to see whether or not it tries to go to that location to read the content if it does if you you know if it let's say it's in the middle of the platter and it moves the head to that location intentionally then it jiggles back and forth for half a second and then returns uh, then there's a good chance that the board's okay and that it actually has tried to read the SA area. So at least the board knew uh, enough to point the head in the right direction to get to where it needed to be. Okay, so your board's okay probably. Probably your board's okay at that point in time. There still may be some other things. There can be firmware problems. There can be some other things that actually happen that are caused by content read from the SA area. So for instance, um, there's a smart table. And the smart table is the you know self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology um, that sh- basically keeps a log file of how many bad sectors you have on your drive and and some comparison numbers for whether or not your drive's going bad or not. Yeah. So uh, if smart had some corruption in this log, mm-hmm. when the head moved to that location and tried to read that content, it would just get an error. It would get an exception, and it would cause the drive to fail. And so it wouldn't read anymore. It would actually just start to click. You'd actually just start getting like a the head would reset and it would continually do click, 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 and then park and then click, click. In a lot of click cases, that's what'll happen. That's what the click of death is. Or so something. that's just smart getting corrupted then. Well, it can be smart getting corrupt. It can be other firmware tables. I mean, it could be a scratch on the platter or something as well. What it ultimately means is that for some reason the head wasn't able to read the system area, and so you don't have the content that you need. And that will cause this click of death problem where you'll hmm. actually start to get this repetitive clicking sound. Okay. Okay. So if you open it up and you see it's going to that um, area, at, well, after the system area, it goes to that specific area to, to um, what's the specific area you're talking about? Is that to read data off of the actual drive at that point? or? Yeah. Um, all, the, all the content that's specific to the drive, content that's needed to actually, you know, like patches to the code or passwords or, you know, bad block lists, all the stuff that the drive actually needs to run that's independent of this drive versus, you know, because two drives that are made that are side by side are different. 
they they do not have exactly the same content on each one of the drives, okay. and parameters and stuff change, and bad block lists change. So there has to be a place for it to be stored that's unique to that drive after it was manufactured. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Well. Okay. So now, say, uh, well, where are we now? Do we determine that the board's? Uh, um, well, do we say like, what do we do if the Head the head doesn't move to that location, or should we go on and say that everything well, does? One of the one of the main things too that I just want to kind of stop and make sure that I let people know is at this point in time, if it was a Western Digital drive and you opened it up, that you would have destroyed the alignment probably of the head assembly, and so that would have caused the problem that would have made it worse. Okay. So if it's a Western Digital drive, you have to kind of call that exception into play and say, you know, how how much you know how much do I want to see? Because usually the issue becomes. Well, if I know I have a problem, and let's say it's a bad head at that point in time, and you know, there's no easy way for you to know it's not firmware if you don't get the right result. You only know if you got the right result. You don't know if you got the wrong result. Okay. So, so the issue becomes with the, and that's without special tools. There are special tools that will tell you if it's a firmware problem. So that's usually where, hey, I'm going to not do it myself, and now I've got to send it in to somebody else. Right. So this is one of those that we call in earlier that basically says, well, I need to know when to stop. Well, you know, if it's a Western Digital and that is your problem, that might be a, a place you need to stop. Now, there are other issues with Western Digital drives that you might be able to repair. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we step through that process, there's going to be some different things that will happen. Like, for instance, um, you can read 50% of the drive and then you can't read any more sectors. In other words, you've got like a 500 gig hard drive. And you're able to read 50% of the sectors, but then all of a sudden every sector fails or every other sector fails. Right. Uh, that actually is a board problem on a Western Digital drive. It actually there's a filter, there's a there's a resistor that's basically on the board that is a problem, and you you cannot fix that easily yourself because what ends up happening is there is some content on the board that needs to be copied from one board to another board. Jeez. So you have to get a good working drive, and you have to back up its its board. Then you take the the bad board. You can still read the content from the board, so you'll read that off, and then you'll write it to this other board. Jeez. How do you heck do, do, do you do all this stuff? Well, I mean, in data recovery, that's what we do to repair right. them all okay. the time. But right. now your issue is, is that that's a problem you can't fix. Right, okay. But you can know that that's the problem. I mean, if you are able to read 50% of the drive and then it fails, well, you kind of already know. Well, look, you know, I was able to read this, but now I've got a resistor at 50% of the drive that's actually failed. And so I can't, I could, you know, try to do a board swap, but that's most likely not going to work without copying this custom content. I see what you're saying. And so it'll just get worse from there, and that would suck. So, that, so. that's where you should stop then. <laughs> right. So, okay. so, I mean, so there is kind of a line that is like, you know, at what spot do you actually say, well, look, I can repair this, and then other spots that I can't without having some special $13,000 piece of equipment. Right. right. Can, you, can you replace a, a board without opening or without ruining the alignment on a Western Digital Drive? Well, you, yes, you can replace the board. The okay. board, uh, the board has no impact on opening the lid of the drive at all, on gotcha. any of them at all. Okay, I mean, you good. can basically now. The thing is, though, is that some people are kind of gung ho about let's pull a heart, you know, a board off. And I've even shown it before in other videos I've done. You know, pull a board off, and it's one of the options you have is actually to do a board swap. Right. However, if the if there's settings that are on the board that are specific to this drive, you can cause more damage. Let's see. So you can't just swap some boards without knowing. Older hard drives, sure. There's a lot of hard drives that were made, say, before 2007, 2006, that the boards are almost identical in most cases. There's a, there's a couple of, like, Western Digitals that have serial, serial uh, chips on them that would have to be resoldered 
it that is something you can do and you can fix if you know what the serial chip is that you need to resolder. Uh, pretty easy and not really that complicated, but most people don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, so you could just swap boards on most drives, you know, pre-2006 or pre-2007, but some of the newer drives now have a lot of content on the board itself or if you have like a voltage regulator or something that's different, the voltages are different for uh, a motor or a head assembly, you can cause damage because now you've got a higher voltage than what's needed, and it'll actually blow another chip. Jeez. So that's this kind of sucks for everybody, you and uh, and you and for you as a company doing this, and for people trying to do it themselves. Yeah, it, it does, unless you just start identifying what those problems are right up front. I okay. mean, you don't just you know arbitrarily go ripping a board off of a new drive and swapping them. Um, right, right. I, I mean, there are some instances where like some Seagate drives or something, they're fine, but um, but Western Digital drives are typically the ones you got to be really careful about. Those are typically okay. the ones that are different. Okay. So uh, so not too bad with most of the others. Uh, there is like a Hitachi, like IBM drives have um, have a, another serial. Uh, another serial chip on some of the boards and some of the boards would need that serial chip to be resoldered. Okay. And so again, it becomes, you could fix it, but how good are your soldering skills? Right. Um, there are some, I don't know if, you know, a lot of the listeners, maybe if some of them are soldering or trying to do some soldering, there's a, there's some specific type of desolder that will actually help you on small chips to be able to remove them called chip quick. And uh, before, a couple of years ago, you had to have these big, fancy, hot iron, uh, basically using hot air to solder and desolder chips. Right. But with ChipQuick, it basically is a low melting point solder that you can basically take and spread around your chip, and it will stay molten for a lot longer. So when you, when you heat it up, it stays molten long enough to melt uh, the solder that's on the chip. And then you can remove the chip without hmm. having to go through these, you know, $3,000 soldering stations ah, or something. Cool. Yeah, it looks like so, a little kit. That can't be that expensive. No, it's a, it's the, the amount of solder. There's actually just like a little solder kit by itself that you can actually get. It's uh, only like $18, $19. Cool. And so you could, you could solder or desolder. And I've got pictures of the Western Digital chips that you would solder or desolder, the U5s and the U12s that you would actually use if you were going to do a board swap and you wanted to make sure you took your content with you. Like I said earlier, you know how I, I mentioned that you could use this tool to copy off the content from one board and copy it to another. Right. The newer boards are very complicated and you would have to use a special tool to do that. Okay. But on some of the older boards that are even you know prior to a year ago, uh, all you got to do is move this U- U12 or U5 chip and that is the same type of content. It just is the same thing, but you're now going to solder it instead of going to a firmware repair, repair place or something. Gotcha. Neat. So, and slide number 65 shows the chip quick desoldering kit. And then you have some slides earlier that show the actual w Western Digital chip, that the ser- serial chip. Yeah, uh, there's there's some of those, and also if you go to YouTube and you type in chip quick, and it's and it's not, it's spelled C H I P Q U I K. Uh, so uh, Q U I K. Yeah. Yep. And uh, if you type that in, they have a little video that will actually show you step by step how they do it, and and it's fairly quick and easy to actually use the stuff. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, and you know, and just so people don't have to just kind of think, oh well, you know, all the things that I've said here, they have to like write down and figure out. I actually made a flow chart of the ideas that I used for this talk. And so it's on uh, slide like 28 or something. Yep, it's 28. Uh, 
And it's a step-by-step. There's a lot on that slide um, to actually kind of break that down. But it was kind of like step-by-step. Where can you go and fix a problem and how, you know, what steps can you take? And, uh, you know, it starts with, you know, does the drive come ready? Is it a Seagate? What, you know, is it a motor problem? And step-by-step until you basically get to a spot where it says, oh, well, now I'm in an advanced location and I really can't fix this one. Good. That's a cool chart. Yeah, I was trying to figure it out before you actually explained it to me, but uh, now it makes sense. Yeah, when you see the flowchart, I mean, pretty much the whole idea, the concept for the talk actually starts to make sense. There's still a lot on there, right? But it's, uh, but it makes a little bit more sense. That's why it's also kind of tough to do this talk because you could, it's like choose your own adventure. You could go in certain directions depending on where you are in in your talk here. So, um, right. we're, we're trying to make it like linear, straight through. But there's so many different paths where you could just take diverging and, and do a different type of action. So right, I mean, like that, you know, because taking the step back to the beginning of the drive. So you know, if you power on a drive and it doesn't power up at all, then you know that brings up a particular question. Yeah. So your issue becomes, hey, does the drive come ready? And no, if it doesn't, as you can see, you can step through it. You know, is it a Seagate drive? Is it you know, does the motor spin? If the motor doesn't spin, then you're going to look at these TVS chips, and this is the, one of the most common problems with current drives is these TVS chips. What's that? Um, so it's a, it's a transient voltage suppressor. And what it is is – and there's a picture of them uh, in the slides. They're going to be um, – I'm trying to find it. Let me see. Yeah. The, there it is, number 58. 58. And so, 59 and 60. Right. Yeah, there's a a few of them in there. So these are pictures of what the transient voltage suppressor looks like. And so what it is, is basically there's two of them. There's one that's a 5-volt and one that's a 12-volt on a 3.5-inch drive. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a 5-volt and a 12-volt. On a 2.5-inch drive, there's only 5-volt. So on a 3.5-inch drive, you got the the 12 and the 5. And they basically are – there's one pin on each side. Basically, underneath these black connectors, the board is connected. And uh, this – device, this chip is in the way basically. And what it does is if there's extra voltage coming through, it will it will blow this fuse instead of allow the voltage through to hurt the rest of the drive. Okay. The the big problem is is that obviously if it blows the fuse, then the drive doesn't work. And there's no easy way for them necessarily to fix it themselves was the point. Uh, that this would still end up being I power it on, nothing happens. I don't get a sound at all. That's that means it's these things, huh? It can be. It's okay. not always, right. but it's one of the first things that I look at when I have one. Because here's the thing. Uh, drives that I get in for recovery, I'm throwing away when I'm done. I'm not trying to repair the drive to keep it usable. Right. I'm only going to get the data off of it. So if your question is, hey, do I send this thing in for $850 or whatever or 1000 bucks to have this drive recovered? Uh, or, hey, if I've got these TVS chips, and again, they're only suppressors. So the issue is the way that you fix these you rip them off. <laughs> That's really all you do. You really r- grab a pair of pliers and you clamp down on the shit. Now, don't just arbitrarily go ripping stuff off the board. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of pictures so people know what they are. It look, if, they also look like some of the other chips. You got to be careful. Yeah, you do have to be careful. I mean, obviously, uh, usually the thing is, is that these only have one side on each side that is connected. It's not going to have like eight pins like some of the others. And the other thing is they're normally going to be two different sizes. There's a larger one and a smaller one. So they're usually physically two different sizes. So the smaller one is five volts and the 
larger one is the 12 volts. And then the next thing is is that they almost always are right next to the power. Uh-huh. They're almost they're almost always near where the power connector comes in because they're obviously suppressors prior to the power being con- you know continuing on yeah. on the board. So you so you mean to tell me if if your hard drive's not spinning up at all and you rip these two chips off, there's a chance it'll start up again? Yep. Neat. This is neat. I like yeah, See, I like I can handle that. That's yeah. an easy fix, Scott. Just rip it off. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it's a really easy fix. And, you know, the, there's no real downside except to ripping off the wrong chip. Uh, <laughs> uh, because, you know, here's the thing is that they only suppress voltage. So what's going to end up happening is they will let um, unclean voltage in after that. So you have a chance that you could fry right. the board further down the road. Right. But if you're using a decent power supply and you're only are going to, you know, don't put these drives back in play. Don't right. make them, I'm going to use them again. Just get the if you had that, Well, you know, the other thing is too is that if you're doing the recovery yourself, keep in mind there's a reason that they blew, which is probably you got some cheap power supply in your computer. Power supplies make all the difference in the world. Drives need good, clean, solid power to run. And I just trust me when I tell you, you should really get, you know, the $100 plus power supplies. Don't buy those cheap $49 power supplies, you know, that are just power supplies. You can typically tell how good they are by their weight. Huh. The heavier they are, the better the power supply normally is. So cheap power supplies are usually light and they're you know paper thin, but they're also horrible quality and they don't typically have uh, a lot of capacitors and stuff to help clean up the power as as it's coming through. Now, so, which, what brands do you recommend, if any? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of high end brands. I don't have a particular one that I particularly care a lot about. Okay. Uh, I'm just, I'm just saying as a whole, I would buy, you know, Antex or, you know, Coolmasters or something along those lines. Something heavy. Yeah. Something heavy, something hundred plus. I mean, if you're, if you're not buying it, you know, a good power supply when you're buying a good power supply, but yeah. if you're buying a crappy power supply or, you know, or here's the other, you know, denomination, the way that, you know, if you're at the store and you don't know which one is the crappy power supply, then you're probably buying the crappy power supply. <laughs> so, you know, it goes back to that old joke, if you're in a room and everybody's laughing at you, that's the way it goes. What you're is the it? One, you're the, the uh, if everybody's laughing in a room and you don't, and uh, you don't know what the joke is, you're the joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. That's, yeah, that's, I've, I've bought my share of cheap power supplies. Hey, most computers that come from Dell or whatever, shipped from the manufacturer, have crappy power supplies, don't they? You know, they're not the best, but they're usually not the worst. If it's okay. you know, if it's Dell or somebody, it's not the best power supply. Yeah. It's still going to be some low rent, you know, whoever's. But it's going to be better than the lowest gotcha. of the low. Gotcha. Uh, if you're buying an e machine, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've I've gone through them. They come with many crappy parts just besides the power supply, or they used to anyway. Yeah. They, uh, and, you know, again, as you're stepping through this, too, you'll see, because I've got another picture of, you know, what happens when you plug in a bad power supply and it fries a board. And I've actually, it's a, it looks like a picture on the screen, but I actually have a video that goes with it that actually shows how the chip gets burned. It just doesn't come through on the PDF on the slides. Uh, but if, you, if you're watching my presentation or something, you'll see it. Does it? I see you plugging in a power supply to a hard drive. What are you putting it upside down? Uh, yeah. Actually, in this case, I'm forcing the thing to fry by You're putting right. it upside down. Yeah. yeah, my dad did that at the shop one time. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm doing for this one. But I mean, they happen, and even just touching the contacts sometimes, right? Uh, because you can actually touch them upside down, even though they're keyed and they won't go in. 
So, uh, so you can fry one arbitrarily without knowing it. But hmm. most of the time, the giveaway for this is the smell. Uh, huh. Even if because you, you can see where that chip is that's on the board that we're looking at, and it's very, very small in the bottom left-hand corner. Oh, uh, okay, I see it now. Yeah, that's the one that burns. It's very hard to see when you're looking at the board as a whole. You can see in the next picture because it's giant. And yeah. In the next pictures, you can actually see where it is, but uh, it's not always obvious where that chip is burnt. And, but you can almost always smell it. So I smell hard drives all the time when they come in. That's one of the first things you do is smell it to see whether or not you've got a, a burn spot. But you can have a bad chip or something that actually already is burnt and not see it visibly. I see. I see. Cool. Those are, that's slide 62, 63, 64, and 64 if you guys are wondering. All right, cool. All right, well, I'll tell you what, Scott. Let's, why don't we split this into two parts because I think we have a lot more stuff to go over, which I, I definitely want to. Sure. Um, but before we end off, we've got about five minutes left. Let's talk about Lightpeak because we brought it up at the beginning of this episode. Um, and then I'll, I have one question from a, a listener that we could ask, and that, then we'll wrap it up. But um, what do you know about Lightpeak and what's, what's it well, going to be like? Lightpeak is, uh, you know, this is one of those things where people go, hey, we want to change the interface on a hard drive. And everybody's like, yeah, I know you want to, but, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, typically the issue becomes, can you get somebody like Intel to back it? Well, this is Intel's uh, discovery basically basically what they've done is they're trying to create a way for you to actually plug your hard drive in with optical cable so that you're actually doing it with light as opposed to actually uh because we're at a limitation right now with our hard drives and transfer speed where we can't transfer the data across the bus fast enough we can't even saturate the current configurations that we actually have uh because now that we have say to spec three you know it's a six gigabit spec our hard drives can't even write close to that they can't even write to the to SATA 2's spec which huh. is a, a three gigabit uh solid state can certain drives can get up to like 200 megabit or something but yeah. that's that's about the extent of it we can't really cross that boundary um so the issue becomes if we could transfer data faster uh, how could we do it? And so Intel came up with LightPeak, and LightPeak is an optical interface. And I think one of the reasons that no one had an optical interface or it was never even a choice before was uh, the problem with optical interfaces is the transceiver. The transceiver that you use, like, and you guys have probably seen them if you've actually seen optical on, say, a router or a switch or something, there's a big giant you know, thing coming out of the, the switch and that Typically, you're going to have a transceiver somewhere, and it connects the cables together. A transceiver. What is a transceiver exactly? Um, a transceiver is the way that it actually, you know, it's the interface that communicates with the digital device to convert it to the to the light, basically, okay. so that it comes out. And so, uh, the transceiver is the expensive component that actually does this, uh, you know, translation oh, for this particular process. Got, okay, I got you. So Intel has come up with a way to actually uh, make it very small and very cheap and to put them – because now you'll have to have two of them. You have to have one on your drive and you've got to have one on your motherboard. Right. So uh, so basically it had to become cheaper in order to actually make this happen. So if you do a search for LightPeak and Intel, you'll actually see pictures of it. It'll have uh, some pretty cool pictures of how they're going to use this optical interface. Uh, again, it won't transfer power, so there's still going to have to be a separate power supply, but maybe we'll actually get the data off of our drives faster. And they're claiming that they're going to have this this process in motherboards in 2010. So really shortly, supposedly, motherboards are going to start having light peak technology in them, which I haven't heard of any drives ramping up to become light peak technology, but you know, Intel makes 
solid state drives. And so the Intel X25 is one of the most popular drives right now. So it's completely plausible that they would change the interface for that drive and in combination with their motherboard's technology. And so we may end up with a really high-speed solid-state device or something on these particular motherboards. I see. I see. Now, I'm looking at this one. It looks like the light peaks go into USB. Does that make any sense, or am I looking at it wrong? Uh, well, there's there probably is a connector somewhere for them to do that, but it's not specifically to USB. I mean, it's a, it's a converter that goes directly into the drive. I'm not sure what picture you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, they all have that same, the main one where wire kind of wraps around, and that looks really cool. But then there's one where it's wrapping around and ending up on the end of a USB port. So, Well, um, I'm sure that there is, you know, some some devices for it to communicate with otherwise, but right. it's not specifically to actually talk to USB. It's specifically right. to talk. And if you actually watch their video and stuff on it, he'll actually go through a demo and stuff of it. Gotcha. Neat. All right, that's Light Peak. Very cool. Right. You, you may you may have been confusing the uh, the adapter that it's plugging in that actually looks like it's USB as the transceiver. It might have actually been the transceiver. I don't know which picture you were looking at though. Um, it's uh, it's on CNET.com. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks. I can't see into the port, but it definitely looks like a USB port. I see the transceiver though, where you're talking about. It's actually on the motherboard, and um, it looks like I don't know. Maybe they rigged it up or something like that. It's, but it's, okay. Yeah. All right, this, this is a question from Jeff. He goes, Steve, I have a question for Scott. I had a customer bring in a computer with a hard drive problem. The computer had a 160-gigabyte Western Digital hard drive. It had the following symptoms. It was detected as a WDC ROM model, a Hawk, H-A-W-K, with 8-gigabyte capacity instead of the real model number and the real capacity. Um, the drive would click three times and then spin down. MHDD would report... A recall fail. Okay. He says, he, I mean, I'll just finish reading and then you tell me what you think is going on if you'd know. He says, I'm thinking it's a head failure, a preamp failure, or a failure in the firmware module in the service area, but I'm not exactly sure what the problem is. In any case, it's beyond my data recovery capabilities. So I pointed the customer to myharddrivedied.com. I'm sure Scott has seen this failure before and was wondering what his thoughts were on the cause and what he has to do to recover data in that situation. That's from Jeff. Well, awesome. Uh, he actually had, I mean, because, you know, this is kind of the issue is that there is a couple of things it could be. Uh, typically, the the signals, you know, that it's giving you an 8 gig is telling you that for some reason that the board actually could not figure out what the geometry was. It was trying to actually report it. But for some reason, that the head could not read that from the system area. So ultimately, the system area wasn't read correctly. And the reasons are those the there's four possible reasons that that could be and he listed three of them so he must have read my white paper <laughs> uh but it's the uh the head the preamp and then you end up having the possibility that there's a scratch on the platter and that that's why the head can't actually read the content I got you. uh and then the last one being that you know board damage firmware damage or something along those lines so those are your four possible problems and he kind of was on that line without actually doing further diagnostics on it you don't know which one it is i see uh you could guess by watching to see if the head moved to the sa area you could probably guess that at least maybe the board was actually in fairly decent shape but again, you would actually, in order to actually fix that or to look at um, the firmware to see whether or not you've got module corruption or something, you have to have a special tool. So uh, so at least by referring them to me, if they sent it in, I would at least be able to examine it and I would know the difference. And it's a Western Digital Drive, so he probably didn't want to open it up. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Well, Jeff, I hope that helps you. And um, 
that's going to be it for this week's episode of My Hard Drive Died. Um, just want to make a quick announcement here. On the homepage of podnuts.com, if you guys want to uh, subscribe to the new feed that's up there, there's a new feed. It basically has all the Podnuts shows all in one feed, so you don't have to subscribe to each show separately. Definitely check that out. Put that into your podcatcher or whatever you do to get to uh, to get the podcasts. And uh, this way you don't have to uh, worry about it. Just get all the Podnuts episodes all in one, and uh, you get a nice, neat little RSS feed. Um, again, Scott is from myharddrivedied.com. And anything else you wanted to uh, plug today, Scott? Uh, no. Uh, the next thing that I'm doing is uh, teaching a class in uh, Washington, D.C. So if anybody wants to uh, look at actually attending my data recovery class, uh, either send me an email or go to sans.org and we'll, uh, we'll point you in the right direction. And what date is that at? Uh, I'm, it's going to be the middle of December, so it's going to be like the 11th through the 15th or something like that. Gotcha. Um, I, I'm not sure right off the top of my head, but it's already it's already scheduled. It's already taken care of, and so next month at least, if you want to if you want to learn data recovery, this is where you go. And how long is the course? Like, is it a couple of days or one day or? It is five solid days. It's uh, between 10 and 12 hours a day for five solid days. We what? do hands-on. We do uh, disassembly of the drives, reassembly of the drives. We do everything end-to-end uh, from a standpoint of actually trying to do a data recovery on a damaged drive. Wow. 10, 10 hours a day for five days? Yes. Wow. Man, that's extensive. That's Try aw- to give them their money's worth. Oh, totally. Over-deliver. That's what I always say. That's, that's awesome. Right. All right. Well, um... You know, Washington, D.C. is close, but you know, since I'm out of the computer repair business, you know, I may, may, might not have to go this time, but I'll catch up with you next time. All right. Uh, thank you, Scott. I, I really appreciate doing the show, and um, we'll see everybody next month. <laughs>